This is the Go Pack Podcast with your host, Jessica Curtis. On this week's episode of the Go Pack Podcast, we're going to talk to Jonathan Wolfson, the Chief Legal Officer and Policy Director at the Cicero Institute. His research at Cicero focuses on healthcare, regulatory reform, and employment policies. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Can you start by telling listeners a little bit about your current role at the Cicero Institute? So I joined the Cicero Institute a little over a year and a half ago after leaving the last administration. And the Cicero Institute is a think tank that's focused on optimistic entrepreneurial solutions to America's toughest public policy challenges. We mostly focus on policies for states to implement. We try to focus on bringing ideas to the states as the laboratories of democracy. And we have a sister lobbying arm that is active with contract lobbyists in 10 states, and we're growing all the time. I'm privileged to be both the chief legal officer overseeing our legal compliance and all of the issues that you deal with on the legal side of having a 501c3 and a 501c4. And also, I'm the policy director. I get to oversee our portfolio of healthcare, regulatory reform, and labor policies. There's an increasing concern in the United States over a growing shortage of doctors. Why are we seeing this? That is a wonderful question. And there are lots of good reasons that people have pointed to in the research over the years, but I'd focus our attention on three in particular, especially as we face the, you know, the end of 2022 and we're getting ready for legislative sessions in 2023, both in the various states and also in the new Congress. I think that first of all, the number of residency slots and, you know, kind of by virtue, the number of seats in medical schools has not grown very much since the 1990s when there was a fear that we were going to be facing a physician surplus in the United States. And so there was an effort to try to limit the number of people who would come out of med school in the United States in order to prevent the competition from driving the value of a medical degree too low so that people wouldn't go to medical school. And so that fear is no longer the fear we have, but that fear was kind of put into public policy and the amount of money that's being spent on residencies from the federal government has been pretty limited over that period of time. And there's been some growth, but generally we've not seen growth keep up with population. Secondly, in talking about population, our aging population in the United States really is a double-edged sword here. Doctors are retiring and reaching retirement age. In fact, something like about 40% of physicians in the United States are going to hit retirement age by sometime in the 2030s. And not only are doctors themselves aging and wanting to retire, but the population is also aging and the average age in our country it continues to go up. And as we know, age is highly correlated with the need for medical care. And so not only are we going to see more doctors wanting to retire and therefore a reduction in the supply of doctors, but demand for physician and other healthcare services is going to rise as the population ages. And then the third thing is physician burnout. And physician burnout was something that was talked about in the literature. If you talk to people at medical schools, you talk to practicing physicians. For years and years, physician burnout has been a concern and something people were worried about, but that was only exacerbated by COVID. And it comes from the feeling many times that doctors feel that they are spending less time caring for patients and more time merely complying with the rules and regulations from governments, insurers, and hospitals. And so that discourages some doctors from wanting to continue their practice. Doesn't mean they necessarily stop practicing, but it does often mean that they look for opportunities to maybe cut back on their practice. Again, all of these are things that reduce the supply and availability of physicians when you or I pick up the phone and say, hey, I need a doctor, or if you or I or a friend of ours needs to go to the emergency room. 
What area of healthcare is currently experiencing the largest amount of doctor shortages? Generally, we are most concerned about primary care physicians, family medicine, kind of the first line doctors are the area where we tend to see the biggest shortages. And these shortages are even worse in rural and other underserved communities. This has a few reasons for being. The first is that those often, as you compare across medical specialties, primary care, family doctors, pediatricians tend to be less highly compensated than, say, brain surgeons or orthopedists and the plastic surgeons. And so the result is that the some of the best doctors decide that when they finish medical school, they try to find residencies in the most lucrative fields. And if they do, then they don't want to go be practicing as primary care docs. And so we see it for kind of an economic reason, but also it can be a really challenging practice because you have a host of issues. You have personalities. You don't get to kind of focus on being the best knee replacement doctor there is. Instead, you're having to deal with, you know, chickenpox vaccines and sniffly kids and, you know, all sorts of ailments and injuries that little kids or their families are having. And so it's just a complicated practice. It can be really challenging and interesting. And that's what attracts a lot of people to it. But those areas, because they are often the primary person that a patient is going to see and the person who's going to have a relationship with the patient, when you have a shortage in that area, it just has ripple effects across the entire healthcare economy. What do you recommend state legislators do to combat doctor shortages in their states? What specific policies have you seen provide a positive impact in states that are focused on solving this huge problem? That's a great question. And, you know, that's one of the things that we try to work on here at the Cicero Institute. I think one of the things that states should focus on is trying to find ways to increase the supply of people who can see patients. So finding ways to allow uh, physician assistants or nurse practitioners or other folks who have medical training who can be that first uh, contact for a patient, that's really important. And a lot of states, most states have those programs. There's a lot of fights in every state over scope of practice. There's you know questions about what pharmacists can do. You know, we saw during COVID that there were a lot of scope of practice rules which were relaxed. And the reason that those scope of practice rules historically had existed was often because of safety concerns and a fear that people were not ready to deal with certain ailments and uh, certain responsibilities. With COVID, we saw a lot of those rules come down and we said, we're going to allow various healthcare practitioners to practice to the full extent of their training. And Finding opportunities to do that is one really important thing. But there's also a lot of people who really do need to see a real MD, find somebody who has expertise in a field that they have a condition. If you have a cancer situation, you are not somebody who's going to say, hey, you know, I'm comfortable seeing somebody who doesn't have a full MD with years of training and experience dealing with cancer. I want to see an oncologist who really knows what she's doing. And so in that situation and in many other situations from primary care all the way up to specialized care, we need to find ways to increase the supply of physicians themselves in the United States. And so that's something that um, we are focused on at the Cicero Institute with a package of reform, reforms that we call our international physician licensing reforms. And, you know, one of the facts that lots of people are not necessarily aware of is that 25 percent of the doctors in the United States who are currently practicing didn't go to med school in the United States. So about a quarter of the doctors who people see on a regular basis are 
people who didn't attend medical school in the United States. Generally, those people finish medical school in India or England or France or Kenya, and then they move to the United States for residency, and then they end up staying here and practicing medicine. Those doctors also tend to focus, be more heavily focused in underserved communities, which is also kind of, of a great thing for our society where we've got lots of people who are coming from all over the world with cultural experiences and backgrounds that in many cases do match certain communities that they're working in. And so that provides some great opportunities for care. But there are tens of thousands of trained physicians from all over the world who can't use their medical training in the United States unless they come to the United States and repeat residency. So these are not doctors who just went to medical school abroad, but these are doctors who did their residency. So they're post medical school graduate training somewhere outside of the United States or Canada. And so kind of a real quick primer in case some of the listeners don't know how medical school and residency works. Typically, if you are an American kid and you attend the, your state university and you decide you want to be a doctor, you finish your biology degree or whatever you study, you take the MCATs and you go to a medical school in the United States. At the conclusion, near the conclusion of medical school, you go through a year of interviews with residency programs, which are kind of specialized training in the field or specialty that you want to work in. And there is what's called match day. And it is literally a computer algorithm spits out where you are going to go spend the next three, four, five years of your career, kind of as a, a junior doctor almost in a practicing environment. And so that is what the traditional path looks like. There are international doctors, folks who go to medical school outside of the United States, including U.S. nationals who go to medical school outside the United States who apply and end up matching through the match program. But there are also tens of thousands of doctors all over the world who, for whatever reason, many of them, it's because they liked living in England and they grew up in England and they've been practicing medicine in England for a number of years. But maybe they have a, a child who decides to go to an American university and they would like to move to the States to come and be closer to their kids, and they would like to practice medicine here. Unfortunately, even if they happen to be the very best doctor in their, in their country of residence, they are not able to practice in the United States unless they then go back through that residency process where they would have to get additional training. Even if we all agree that the training that they have is equivalent and they know everything they need to know. And so what we have said at the Cicero Institute is let's try to find a way to help those doctors from around the world who have training. And that includes doctors who may come to the United States as uh, refugees. So there's a gentleman in the neighborhood where I live in Virginia who just moved here from the Ukraine. And he just posted a message on our neighborhood message board that he's interested in power washing people's homes. And so that is obviously wonderful for people in our neighborhood to be able to help him to make ends meet while he's here. However, that is definitely not allowing him to use the skills, training, and experience that he has as a doctor in the Ukraine, we here in the United States. And so there's a question of, is there a way to help find a path for him to be able to practice or for others like him to be able to practice? And then there's also a question, is there a way to find a path to help that doctor who you know wants to follow her kids here who are attending university? Can we give them a way that they can practice and help us deal with this large and growing physician shortage that we all know is a problem? And so that is one of the policies that we are working on at Cicero. And our focus is really on four different pathways. And the first is a facility-sponsored pathway where a facility, whether it's a hospital, a university's hospital, a small uh, pediatrician's clinic, any type of medical clinic can directly apply to the state and get 
approval for that doctor to then practice in the United States without repeating residency. The second pathway that we talk about is finding a way for physicians who come, who have their training and have practiced in the Commonwealth countries. So countries that are really related to the British Commonwealth to come and practice in the United States without repeating residency. And the reason we do that is that in the United States right now, if you are a practicing physician in Canada, you can move to the United States without repeating residency and go immediately into medical practice. In Canada, you can do the same thing if you come from about 10 Commonwealth countries around the world. And so rather than forcing a doctor from the United Kingdom to say spend three or four years practicing in Canada before he decides to move to the United States and practice, we're trying to just truncate that process and allow that doctor to practice in the United States right away. The third pathway that we have developed in our kind of model policy is a policy that allows doctors and residency programs around the world to apply themselves and say, we, w- we would like your state medical board to evaluate the training that we have and to help determine whether or not the training that we have is equivalent and therefore we don't need to repeat residency. And the last and final is a pathway for doctors who have practiced for a certain number of years, usually between seven and 10 years, have demonstrated expertise and skills and experience in their country, wherever they happen to be. And if they can show that their training is equivalent, then they are able to come and practice immediately in the United States. So those are really kind of the four pathways that we have put together in model legislation that we think really can make a difference in this uh, in this challenging time where we're trying to find more doctors to meet this shortage. Before joining Cicero, you led the policy office at the U.S. Department of Labor. How has this experience expanded your perspective in healthcare and regulatory reform? Yeah, so, you know, it was a really fun opportunity to get to work with some really amazing people at the Department of Labor, uh, getting to attend senior staff meetings every morning and getting to know some of the people who really knew these policy areas exceptionally well and had spent a lot of time and, you know, it was during COVID. And so we got to also, we, we joked around that we were working two full-time jobs. We were doing all of the labor department COVID side work while simultaneously doing all the regulatory reform and policy work that we had originally been planning to be doing uh, in, in that period of time. And so it was just a, a fascinating opportunity to see kind of behind the curtain of how governing was actually done and how regulating was actually done. It really did make me cognizant that legislation standing alone can't address a problem if you don't have good regulation. So it doesn't matter how good your legislation is, especially in the modern era of legislating, where there are a lot of, let's just call them less than clear pieces of legislation that get written. And so the regulators do play a really significant role in implementing policies that are put into place through the legislature. And so having smart, capable people who can put together regulations that are in line with the underlying policy direction that the policymakers wanted is really important. It was also a great reminder that even with good laws and good regulations, you have to see enforcement as a priority for an agency. You have to make sure that not only are there good laws on the books and good regulations, but that people really do put an effort in to enforce those laws and regulations. And, you know, we're seeing this right now in the healthcare space in the price transparency regulation. So there was a price transparency regulation that exists that requires hospitals and other providers to publish the price prices for various treatments. And we, you know, based on most of the current data we're seeing about 
25 to 35% compliance across the hospitals. And at least at this point, there have been only a small handful of enforcement actions taken by the federal government against those folks. And so if there is a regulation that, let's say, a regulated party doesn't want to comply with, if there are really low rates of enforcement, then the incentive to not comply can be really high. And so it's really important if you're going to put a policy in place to make sure that not only you have good regulations, but that you enforce them really well. And those were things we were doing every day and thinking about kind of the balance of all of those pieces at the Department of Labor. And, you know, one of the things when I was at the department, I had the opportunity to talk to lots of employers who were looking for great workers. And every single one of them was concerned about finding great people and how do they pay for the healthcare benefits that are continuing to cut into the raises that they are trying to give their employees. So they may want to give their employees a 10% raise, but if healthcare has gone up 25%, most of that 10% cash compensation raise ends up going to the health insurance company and not to the worker. And so the worker may not feel like he or she is getting a raise, even though in the employer's mind, the cost for employee compensation has risen significantly. You recently published an opinion piece discussing California's Assembly Bill 5, which prevents trucking companies from hiring self-employed truckers and newspapers from hiring freelance writers. The U.S. Department of Labor wants to follow California's lead with new regulations to stop businesses from hiring independent contractors. How would this impact the independent contractor's ability to find work? It's a great question. And, you know, I wrote the op-ed in part because I spent a lot of time on this topic when I was at the Department of Labor. The Wage and Hour Division, the Solicitor's Office, and my office worked very closely to put together a regulation that really did try to encourage independent contracting because as we've seen across the economy, people really are happy generally with being independent contractors. That doesn't mean every person in the country wants to be an independent contractor. But as Secretary Gene Scalia used to say, every time he would meet a worker, he never met somebody who told him their dream was to one day have a W-2. Many people would talk about their dream of being a business owner and starting their own business. And independent contracting is exactly that opportunity. You know, independent contracting is really just the one word for being self-employed or for being an entrepreneur. And we really need to encourage folks to do those things because there's a lot of tasks that may not fit within a business model for that person to be an employee. But, you know, California, a few years back in 2019, passed what's called AB5, Assembly Bill 5, which implemented with the ABC test, which is really just a fancy labor uh, lawyer term and kind of shorthand for a test that one part requires that a business cannot hire an independent contractor whose work matches the hiring company's line of work. So that, for example, means that an owner-operator trucker can't work for a trucking company because the trucking company's business is trucking. And so if you can't, if you want to hire an independent contractor, you're welcome to hire an independent contractor to wash your windows or to mow your lawn as a trucking company, but you can't hire an independent contractor to drive trucks. And you know that's the test that California put in place. There had been some lawsuits holding up the enforcement against trucking and the Supreme U.S. Supreme Court just recently said that the law could go forward. The Supreme Court did not try to wade into the policy discussion. They just said the federal government does not have 
the authority to stop California from implementing what, in my opinion, is really bad policy. So if you think independent contracting is bad, if you think that entrepreneurs are bad, then shutting down independent contracting status makes sense, right? So what California did is not crazy if on a base philosophy, you think independent contracting is a problem. However, it seems that many bureaucrats want to do this, not necessarily because they think independent contracting is problematic, but because they really just think that workers only want a W-2 job. They only want employment. And absent employment, uh, as I pointed out in my op-ed, unless it's a company that your grandma can name from you know, a, a blue chip stock list, they think that working for that employer is probably not great if you aren't getting paid with a W-2. And, you know, unfortunately, that attitude does permeate a lot of bureaucrats who are at the Department of Labor currently, who are really trying to stifle the field of independent contracting. If they get their way, and we'll see if they are able to put together a regulation that does it, this would mean that freelancers, people who do translation work for a variety of companies and entities, financial advisors, you know, lots of independent workers who are on Etsy and all these other sorts of people who want to have an opportunity to work some on the side, many of whom are women, moms, retirees. Many of these people would no longer be able to do the work that they're currently doing. Um, in fact, in order to kind of support their push to reduce the likelihood of more independent contractor workers existing, Department of Labor in June hosted a listening session for workers to come and kind of complain about how bad it was to be independent contractors. And unfortunately for the Department of Labor, the pro-independent contracting forces overwhelmed the call. There were hundreds of independent contractors, workers themselves, who really liked their status as independent contractors. And they flooded the call and said, please don't create a new regulation that's going to make it that much harder for us to be independent contractors. So hopefully, between those comments, between op-eds like mine, and the voices of lots of independent contractors who tell organizations like MBO Partners that you know about 80 to 90% of them wouldn't want to change over to employment jobs. They would like, they want to keep their independent contracting status. Hopefully between all those things, the U.S. Department of Labor will not attempt to implement the California uh, ABC test. But that has been the hints that have been coming out. And we'll see um, sometime this fall when they do release the proposed regs what they have come up with. And before we let you go, tell us what you see as the future of healthcare. Yeah, healthcare is obviously really important to our economy. It's important to the lives and livelihoods of so many in our country. I think that in the years to come, we're going to see fights and hopefully an increase in access to care. We'll see more doctors. We're going to say new, we're going to see new ways to reach those doctors through telemedicine and other innovative ways to access care. We're also going to find better ways to access care outside of an insurer-defined network, whether that is going to a minute clinic or finding opportunities to have kind of a care organization that is working on all of your care at once where you are no longer kind of going to a primary doc and then finding a follow-up visit at a doc that's unrelated. There's going to be lots of opportunities to do that. I think that we're going to see better consumer tools to empower patients. Uh, We're going to see price transparency working with the employer, insurers, or others to try to incentivize savings. And we've tried to develop some policies along those lines at Cicero. I think that electronic health records are going to become easier to access They'll be more secure, but it'll be easier to share those records with 
the doctors and with the other providers who need access to that information or at least to the specific information they need for that patient. And I think we're going to continue to see innovation both in care itself, whether that is more personalized pharmaceuticals or biologics or other types of medication, more personalized medicine itself, the practice of medicine becoming more personalized for the patient. But also we're going to see innovation in the technology, whether that's the electronic records technology, whether that is technology for how do we treat and diagnose diseases or technology that helps us to better manage the process of making sure that the right people are getting the right care at the right time. I think all of those things are coming on the horizon. Hopefully they'll be here really soon. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It was a real pleasure to be here. Join us next time on the GoPack podcast to hear from Congresswoman Claudia Tenney from New York. We talk about foreign policy, election integrity, and we even talk a little football. This is Jessica Curtis, Executive Director of GoPack, and your host, Talk to you next time. This has been the Go Pack Podcast. Learn how we're educating and electing a new generation of Republican leaders at gopack.org.